This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Wittgenstein wrote, The world of the happy man is different from that of the unhappy man. And I'd like to begin this morning looking at some of the different ways that we could interpret that. Now, in an ordinary materialist sense, we could always say that happy person's life has health and security and love and relationship. And it's precisely the absence of those things that distinguishes them from an unhappy man. Too often, we neglect the obvious. And I'm pretty sure Wittgenstein wasn't talking about material conditions. He himself grew up in an enormously wealthy family. The Austrian equivalent of the Carnegie's. Yet he gave away his fortune, lived in a, a life of voluntary asceticism. So he was not uh, inclined to talk about material conditions as the difference between happiness and unhappiness. The other way we might begin to think about the difference would be as a state of mind. A kind of capacity for positive, engaged, you know, mood, a change in your consciousness or feeling. The difference between a man on Prozac and a man off of Prozac. Wittgenstein, though, was a person notoriously troubled, personally tormented, both by 
his own sense of guilt or inadequacy or confusion about his sexuality, but perhaps primarily about his own sense of goodness. Yet his last words were, tell them I've had a wonderful life. He didn't say a happy life, he said a wonderful life. But I think it says something about how we might understand a happy life a little differently. And that it's not just a matter of having a certain mood or state of mind all the time. That you could have this wonderful life in the midst of great torment and, and difficulty. I think it's interesting that he does say the world of the happy man, not the mind of the happy man. Because although he's not talking about material conditions, he's talking about how we see ourselves situated engaged or not with what's around us, what's our relationship to it all, what kind of landscape do we find ourselves in? When you're bored, and I admit that this is a malady I'm subject to, you can look around you and nothing's interesting. There's nothing you want to read, nothing you want to watch or listen to. Somehow everything is not it, it's gotten dull. The world suddenly goes gray on you, right? So part of what we're looking at is a difference in perspective that is not just a matter of mood, but also, I think, a more complex level of engagement and involvement, identification or participation. And in one sense, this does correspond to the figure ground shift that I talk about with the duck rabbit drawing, which uh, was an example Wittgenstein used to talk about change in perspective. Much of what we mean by realization 
is that change in perspective. Which is not just suddenly I feel differently, but the world I occupy is different and my relationship to it is different. Now I want to switch channels for a minute and look at a different model of realization as exemplified in the story of uh, Vimala Kirti and his illness. The Virmala Kirti Sutra is a Mahayana text that's uh, thought to have been written around uh, 100 of the, the common era. Uh, but it's cast in terms of a uh, dialogue with Buddha and his disciples as if it was taking place in uh, India at the time of the Buddha. But it's some, someone writing hundreds of years later, but in order to make his uh, point seem deep and authentic, he puts the story into the context of the Buddha and his original teachings. In any case, uh, Virmala Kirti is a renowned lay disciple of Buddha, and Buddha hears that he is ill and asks his disciples to call on him and see how he's doing. But it turns out everybody's very reluctant to go pay this sick call because they've all had experience with him in Dharma combat and they're all very intimidated by him. And finally, uh, Buddha says, Manjushri, the embodiment of wisdom, to go visit the old sick man. And the way this story is set up, we're told that Virmala Kirti is actually a very wealthy man. But then when Manjushri arrives, he finds him in a small, empty, single-room hut, lying in, on the bed with nothing there except, you know, this empty room and the old man in bed. And Manjushri asks him, what is the nature of his illness? And how can he be cured? How could he be helped through his suffering? And Virmala Kirti replies that he is ill because all beings are ill. His illness arises from the greed, anger, and ignorance of all beings. 
And since he is not separate from them, as long as they are ill, he will be ill. And this is presented as the model of the Bodhisattva, whose own realization is manifest as non-separation from all beings, and who will not enter nirvana until all beings enter nirvana. Now, I'm not sure if it's appropriate to ask, is Virmala Kirti a happy man or not? We have here a model realization that doesn't have any barrier between self and suffering. It doesn't seem like this is a model of uh, the end of suffering, the way uh, Buddha is supposed to have taught. That's what the Dharma is about, cause an end of suffering. It is curious in a certain way to compare non-separation of the bodhisattva from the non-separation that we're told that the Buddha experienced at his moment of enlightenment. Looking up at the morning star, he says, in this moment, I and all beings together achieve Buddhahood. It's an expression of non-separation from the world, but here the non-separation is like non-separation from the twinkling star, perfect just as it is, in the midst of its constant change and interdependence. We don't have a picture of non-separation as non-separation from suffering in that moment, but a transcendence of suffering, arrival at a place where everything is perfect just as it is. Vimalakirti offers a kind of different slant on it because even though he's ill, even though he shares the suffering of the world, his teaching is all about emptiness. And in a way, it's symbolized by him meeting Manjushri in this small, empty room, just lying there in the bed. But 
because even though he's not separate from the suffering of the world, he teaches the non-duality of health and illness. Both are empty. Illness has no intrinsic reality. Health has no intrinsic reality. I'll change channels again. I was thinking of the difference between Walt Whitman, 1855, when he publishes the first edition of Leaves of Grass. And then Walt Whitman, 10 years later, towards the end of the Civil War, as he publishes Drum Taps. And the Whitman of 1855 is young, full of health, full of energy and sexuality and vitality, feels one with the vitality of the whole world and everyone around him and is sort of just bursting with that, right? And he sings a song of myself, which is a song of his non-separation with everything around him, but it's joyous. Ten years later, his world has changed. He has spent the last couple of years moved to Washington to take care of all the young men torn up by the Civil War with amputated limbs, sometimes maimed or mutilated beyond any hope of survival. And he would just go from cot to cot, literally seeing thousands of soldiers just to offer comfort, sometimes helping them write a letter home, send last words to parents who wonder if they are alive or dead. And he has a whole other kind of experience of non-separation. Non-separation from the suffering of the world. Is he a happy man? I suspect something of his happiness of 1855 is still in him. 
but it takes a very different form, has a very different feeling. But one doesn't think that he's responding to the suffering of those around him in the manner of Birmala Kirti, that it's all empty. Health, illness, no difference. I don't think so. Well, why I can imagine Whitman being a happy man in 1865 is that he's fully engaged and engaged through love to all the suffering he encounters. And in the midst of all that pain, he's alive. He's alive as a human being can be because he's responding in a way that he knows is personal and makes a difference. One last switching of channels. Kyogen Carlson writes about the monastery as shelter, as fundamentally a place to come and get in touch with silence. He also talks about that silence, the silence of samadhi is being in touch with pure awareness or big mind. Those are not words that I would uh, ever particularly use, but silence is a good word. And what we get in touch with I think, is the mind that leaves everything alone. It leaves everything just as it is. It's the Buddha mind looking up at the morning star, saying, that's me. And everything is perfect just as it is. That's the silence of the Zendo. But that is also, he says, in dialectic with prasha, with wisdom, or action. Somehow, we don't just rest in silence. We come out of it into some kind of engagement with the world. And I think that too often in our practice, we equate something like the world of Wittgenstein's happy man with simply being able to enter into that 
silence in which everything is just as it is. But that makes our happiness something that's just taking place inside, makes it a state of consciousness. It leaves out the world. In fact, I think when we equate practice and happiness with the perfection of that silence, the outer world becomes our enemy. It intrudes on us. Other people become the problem. They're intruding on us. They're not behaving the way we want. Then well, we, we're stuck in a new kind of dualism, one in which we're trying to cultivate an inner happiness, but by keeping a world of suffering or a world of intrusion at bay, world of other people at bay. And Kyogen rightly says, we have to come out of that into some form of action. We have to emerge into a world where even row after row of wounded soldiers, a sight we would think of as horrific, overwhelming, becomes an opportunity to engage, to love, to be non-separate in a way that doesn't leave us just feeling mired in the suffering of others, but somehow still joyously participating in being there with others in the world. I think it's very hard for us to uh, weave together or integrate all these different channels. I'm not sure I can make a coherent synthesis out of them. I think that we all struggle one way or another to figure out what does it mean to have a happy life good life, a life of compassion, a life of non-separation, a life of silence, a life of action. Everybody's going to put those together in a different combination and in their own way, particularly in lay settings like ours, where we all go out into the world in our own ways, having, I hope, been some way fueled or nourished by 
both our silence and our time together. What we have to share is our own unique way of trying to create shelter and emerge from it so that we live uh, in the world of the, the happy man. <laughs>